It's lovely to have Mimi here with us. Mimi, I never met you. You were here before I came. Which year did you come here? 2007. But it's lovely. So for those who know Mimi, it's a real joy to see her again. And do make a, uh, take the opportunity to have a chat with her after the service. But for those of you who don't know Mimi, Mimi was here on a ski through an organisation called Careforce, where we had over a number of years a volunteer who'd come for a year. They could have come from anywhere. The ones that came here happened to come from different parts of the world. And Mimi came to join us for that year. And you lived amongst us shared with us and worked in the life of the church. Um, So a lot must have happened since 2007, and you're going to come and share something of what's been going on in your life since then. So yeah, uh, my name is Mimi, I'm from India, and I did my gap year with Careforce here in this church. I started in 2007, uh, September, and finished in August 2008. And while I was here... I helped with the children and with the elderly as well, and I was very much part of this church, and I really enjoyed it. And I lived with Paul and Helen uh, down in Bramley, and now they've shifted to Horsham, so I seem to follow them everywhere, so I still stay with them. So it's been brilliant. And after I finished my gap year, I went back to India, and I uh, continued my master's in sociology and went on to do uh, research and I'm in my final year of PhD and uh, I work, my PhD is on education during the colonial times, basically focusing on the missionaries. So, and it's an interest I picked up from here, by the way, so thank you. I teach sociology in one of the universities in India, which I absolutely love. And I really enjoy it. And I've been teaching for two years now. So, yeah, that's a bit about me. And uh, one thing I would really like to share this morning is I would like to take this opportunity to thank the church, really. And uh, whenever I think about Warner's Church, there's a verse that always comes to my mind, which is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, which says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. I received so much from this church and I came out thinking that I could, I was young and I was very eager to give out and I asked, I told God, I said to God, God use me how, uh, however way you want me, but I came here and it was absolutely opposite to what I expected and actually God was trying, uh, was um, trying to do something else. He was preparing me for something else that was brilliant and I learned so much. And people have been very, very kind to me uh, over the years, and especially while I was here. uh, You know, I received so much. You showed me uh, much kindness and care, and I remember them very clearly, and it's very close to my heart. You may think that it was really insignificant, but it is very significant for me. Uh, So all the lifts that you gave me, all the kind words, all the support, financially and otherwise, the friendly smiles, the friendships, the spiritual encouragement, the interesting conversations, uh, the trust, especially with the young parents. They really trusted me with their children, so that's quite a lot. And the lovely meals, the endless prayers, the acceptance, the love and the homes that were open for me. So you must have done these things. Uh, for various reasons, maybe uh, out of your personal goodness or for the love of God or maybe as a duty. 
But whatever the reasons may be, I would like to say that God has blessed it. And it did not stop there. Through all those things that you have blessed me, you didn't just bless me, but you blessed lots of people whom you will never ever meet and whom you may never even know, really. So, uh, so bless, I mean, showing kindness to each other has really a ripple effect. So it really, it really goes a very, very long way. And also, uh, one thing I would also like to say is, it benefited me and others I meet along the way in my life. And our kindness as believer of Christ, our action done in obedience to Christ has much larger implication than we could even imagine. So let us not trivialize at all that we could even, uh, the deeds of grace and love that we do in obedience. Satan is trying really hard to tell us that actually it's just a small act of kindness. It's really trivial. It's a small thing, but actually it's not. It has implication and it resonates through and it encompasses space and time really. So uh, I would like to take uh, this time to just thank you once again. And Wana's Church is very close to my heart. And I remember you all in my prayers and I hope you do too. Thank you very much. The reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, and beginning at verse 11. If you want to follow in the Bible in the pew, it's page 1111, so four ones. This is Lydia's conversion in Philippi. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. This is the word of the Lord. It's great to hear that from Mimi uh, about what being here meant and the impact because that's what we've been considering this term. Being game changers and the the difference that we can bring by allowing Jesus to live through us, the impact that that can have. And and thank you for sharing that and thank you for reminding us that, that often what we think is very small can actually have huge impact and the ripples can go on beyond what we'll ever know. We, we want to know the outcome of everything, don't we? But actually sometimes we just have to trust that by living as God's people, 
The impact is there and the ripples will be there even if we don't see them and never ever will see them. So thank you, it fits in very well with what we are going to be thinking about. We've had our reading from Acts and we're going to think today about change in our communities. What does change look like in our communities? What would it look like in our community if we lived as game changers? I want to start by showing a brief video. This is a story about common folk. There were lots of folk, and then Jesus came, and that was good. And the result was church, people together, and that was good. No one quite knows where the wall came from, and that wasn't so good. Some people tried to shelter behind the wall. Some tried to make it taller. Then one day, they decided to build a tower to see over the wall and saw that things on the other side of the wall were a bit iffy in their eyes and they wanted to help them. They thought, ah, put a door in the wall, a glass door even, and invited them to come. But they didn't. So, one went out, home to home, knocking on doors, inviting them to come, but that didn't really help. Then a group got together, went out, had a barbecue, grabbed one, pulled her back, and that was uh, good and bad. Then, one day, one of them went out. A long way out, actually a very long way out, and he stayed out. His friends invited him to talk about what he was interested in. He talked about God. And the result was, uh, like church... And that was good. And it grew. And there was a rule. An important rule in this new kind of church. And this was it. No more walls. It's quite a provocative little video, isn't it? And it raises an awful lot of questions about what does it mean for us to to be church and to have an impact. Is it a case of thinking, well, here we are, we're living the good life, we know God, we know that that's a really good thing and we'd love other people to know it. Do we go and grab people and, and bring them in? Or do we go out? And what do we feel like about going out? And I don't want to talk about the whole sense of evangelism. I want to talk about what it means to live, to live our lives wherever we are. Not to think that it's isolated to what we do here on a Sunday, but who we are as people, resonating wherever we are, wherever we are living. It's only when we see church as that, that it's who we are through the week, much more than who we are gathered here on a Sunday, that we begin to even have the possibility of transforming our communities. And there are similarities with this conversation that is an age-long conversation, isn't it? How many church PCC meetings have debated whether or not the mission strategy should be about setting up events, running barbecues, doing whatever it might be, having guest services? We tussle with this time and time again. But it's no different to the early church. It's no different to what Paul is facing And we might look at Paul and think, well, you know, it was fairly random what he was doing. He was called by God on various missionary journeys. 
He'd met Jesus in an amazing way and committed his life to him and wanted to share the good news with as many people as possible. And throughout the book of Acts, we read of three missionary journeys. Some of them are successful. Some of them he ends up in prison. But wherever he goes, he speaks of Jesus and people come to know Jesus and church is formed. It may not be church as we recognize it now, but um, groups of believers gathering together, expressing their faith. And it happened. But was it random? Did Paul just randomly turn up in places and think, who shall I talk to today? Let's try over here. No. There is actually some strategy and some thought behind Paul's approach to mission. Wherever he went, firstly, he was always called. He had the sense of God telling him, I'd like you to go to such and such a place. So that's, that's part one. He listened to God. But when he did find himself in wherever he was, he followed a pattern of who he talked to. And what he tended to do first was to approach Jewish people. Why? Because Jewish people knew God. They knew Yahweh, the true God. But they didn't know Jesus. So that's really sensible to start with people who already know God. So he would talk to the Jewish people and say, you know the truth, you know God, but let me tell you about Jesus. And let me tell you the difference that that now makes to your faith. And a lot of Jewish people then understood who Jesus was and form part of the early church. But if he was in a place where there weren't Jewish people, he would find people who were open, who were spiritually hungry, and he would begin to talk to them. He would think, where is there a sense of of harvest here? Where am I sensing that people might be open? And again, he would have been directed by God. But he would go to people who had within them a hunger, an openness, That's really insightful, isn't it? If we are thinking about how we actually talk about our own journey and who we might do that with, let's think about the people where they're already in a position where they're open to listen. And thirdly, he goes to where they are. He doesn't go and build a church building and say, we're having an open day, we're um, coming for coffee and croissant, come and hear the message, and we've got a fantastic guest speaker and an amazing band. Come. He goes to where they are. And that's what's happening in our passage in Acts. He's in Philippi. And he's gone to Philippi because he's had a vision of a man. And this is God speaking to him. Where the man asks him to come to Macedonia. And this is Paul's first entry into Europe. So strategically, it's very significant. Philippi is a city in eastern Macedonia. It's a Roman colony. It's independent of provincial administration. So therefore, if you had been to visit the city in that day, it would have looked very Roman, with Roman rules, Roman customs, and Roman ways of living. There were very, very few Jewish people in Philippi at that time. So therefore, there was no synagogue. And some commentators believe that there was also a law which stopped unrecognized religions being practiced inside the city. That may or may not have been the case. But whatever was the case, people who were worshipping God were meeting outside the city by the river. And so Paul goes to that place. 
he goes to find a place of prayer. He understands the customs of these types of cities and thinks, I know where I might find people who are open. And he went outside the city to find a place of prayer. And there he meets Lydia, who is born in um, a place called Thyatira, which is famous for its purple dye. And she's a, a successful businesswoman dealing in this expensive dye. It was the most expensive dye, as you'll know. She's a Gentile. She isn't Jewish. She's a Gentile. Like Cornelius, if you were here two weeks ago, you'd have heard David talking about Cornelius. But she believed in God and worshipped him. How that had happened, we don't know. Again, some commentators thought that perhaps in Thyatria there might have been a Jewish population, so she might have heard something. But within her own very being, she'd come to understand there is God. And she was worshipping God. And so she was open to Paul's message about Jesus. So when Paul went to the river, spoke to the people, Lydia was in a place where she could very easily respond, and she did so. And this resulted in both she and her household being baptised. A symbol, a sign, that she actually had understood the message and was wanting to follow Jesus for herself. And then she offered hospitality to Paul. So that's what's going on in the passage. And I want us to spend a short time thinking about what we might learn from this. What is there within this narrative that has a a tool for us, a challenge to us, a, a way of helping us think and unpick some of our own questions? The most important thing to recognize is that we have got opportunities to help people meet Jesus for themselves, wherever we are. The video I showed was to remind us something that we already know but actually often forget, is that we are the church wherever we are. The church isn't just a building. But we are God's people because of what we know and who we are and our life in Christ. So that wherever we are, we are part of God's church in that place. And so therefore we all have opportunities before us. A few years ago, if you were part of this church, we followed a series about front lines. We had a sermon series and we followed this up in home groups. And we talked about what was your front line. Where is your place where you are other than the hour and a half that we spend here on Sunday? Think about it, only an hour and a half in church and the rest of the week. Where are we over that time? And we began to recognize the power of seeing these as our places where we live as God's people in those places. And they are our areas of opportunity. It might be our workplace, our place of learning, wherever we meet people. It might be in the school playground amongst other parents. It might be through social activities. It might be amongst our neighbours. But these are our places where we are living as church and have opportunities open to us. Now, I just want to put in a little aside here. There is an argument as to whether churches should be attractional, i.e. we invite people to come in, or whether we should be forever going out. And I don't think it's an either-or. I think there's a both-and. 
And their place of attraction, of invitation, is really important to us as a church. As a village church, and this is our geographical location, we have an amazing opportunity to invite people in because people live in our village and know us as the church. And we invite in and people are drawn in and are attracted to church. And that is something to give thanks to God for. And we don't want to um, abuse those opportunities. So at Christmas time, we should be thinking we have got some amazing opportunities to invite people to come in. And we're planning on, if we're recognising that people do come at Christmas, and then thinking, what might we invite them to next? So thinking strategically, if we have people and, and families gathered here over Christmas, let's give them an invitation to come back on the 8th of January to either a 9 o'clock service or a 10.30 and describe what those are. Because we've got a captive audience of people interested already here. So let's make the most of that opportunity for further invitation. So I'm not saying that we never invite in. And in fact, we have an amazing opportunity in this church for invitation in. And we have a good place in this village to be able to do that. But this is not the only way of being game changers. So two questions from the story of Lydia and Paul. Question number one. What would it look like if we were more involved in our communities? What would that actually look like in a practical way? And then secondly, at the end of this passage, Lydia opens her house in hospitality. And she, if we read further on, that's a pattern that we see Lydia offering hospitality. And that's a real feature of who she is. So my second question is this. What would it look like if we lived our lives with hospitality as a central value? And I think those two questions are actually linked. Because as we become more involved in our communities, that gift of hospitality becomes more and more important. But what does that actually mean and look like? But I'm going to start with question one. What would it look like if we were to be more involved in our communities? Now, I know not everybody lives in Wanish, so you have to think about what your community is, and that might be work. It might be actually you spend far more hours in London than you do in Surrey. So think of your community, but I'm going to start, so we've got something in common by thinking about Wanish. What would it look like to belong to Wanish? How we use our time within Wanish and how we make the most of the opportunities before us. I hate these questions because it makes me feel so guilty that I don't do enough. Hands up, and I'm sure a lot of you are sitting there thinking, "Uh uh-oh, here she goes. She's going to be asking us all to go out there and evangelize in the playground. And that's why I have a real problem with this because in my mind, I make this task far too large. And I imagine... God speaking down to me. How many conversions this week, Debbie? How many people have you told about Christ? And so therefore I don't do anything. And I don't make the most of those opportunities that are there. So I want to simplify it. Because I was praying through this and and I felt God say to me, you're making it too big a deal. I'm not asking you to go and preach on the street corner. I'm asking you to be you and to live within your community And to make the most of the opportunities that arise. And I remembered back to one one day during half term. I like to walk and if you live in the village you might see me walking around the village from time to time. I, I like fresh air and I like to get out and it's the only opportunity for a bit of exercise. So you may well find me at times wandering through the village. And I did this one day during half term. It was a beautiful day. It was a bit like today. 
and I walked through. And as I walked, and, and God reminded me all of this, I want to tell you about some of the people that I met as I walked. So I was walking along towards the shop and there was a car parked outside the shop and there was a man in it who waved at me. And I'd actually seen this man in the theatre earlier that week. Um, and Paul had said to me, who's that man? I don't recognise him. I said, oh, I married his daughter. He said, well, that's an unusual conversation. <laughs> and there he was again in his car. And I did marry his daughter um, two or three years ago in this church. And there's a connection and he remembers me. And we had that involvement in a really important moment of his life. And I happened to meet him twice that week, once in the theatre and once in his car outside the shop, and he gave me a friendly wave. And then I went into the shop, and Audrey serves in the shop. And I um, was involved in a burial of ashes for Audrey and her family about a year ago. And we've created a little bit more of a bond. It was somebody I always said hello to, but now there's been, again, that involvement in her life. There's a greater warmth, and she calls me by name when I, I go into the shop. And so we had a little bit of a chat and I wandered on. And I, and I walked through the playground and there were some children out playing because it was half term. And two children that I have to say I didn't recognise at all. But one of them came scooting down to me on our scooter saying, Hello, Reverend Debbie. And I thought, OK, she must be a school child. And she engaged me in deep conversation. What are you doing? What have you been doing? Where are you going? So we had a conversation and her bemused parents and grandparents were looking on. But they realised that the Reverend Debbie was OK and that I, I could have a conversation. And then I bumped into another family who were new to the village in the playground. And then I wandered around Barnet Lane and um, bumped into a church member who comes to 8 o'clock, who I hadn't seen for some time, and had a conversation with her. And I think there were others on that particular day that I bumped into. Now, for me, that was just me enjoying myself, because I love to go out for a walk, and it's a beautiful village, and it's a lovely day. But I was thinking, there are connections that I have by living here in this village and by people knowing who I am. Now, I have a little bit of an advantage. I I don't wander around the village wearing a dog collar, but because of these connections, people have got to know me and know who I am. I had no conversations about faith on that journey. But I think there were opportunities to build relationship, which primarily is the first step. And I thought that is a real lesson to me. I look at Paul going and preaching to Lydia and there's conversion and her whole household is baptised and there's the beginning of a new church and that's the success I'm looking for. Where actually it might be more about building relationship, building connections and being patient. Yesterday I spent the morning in the Selwyn room with um, Christ Church Washington Roads PCC, the uh, church in Guildford, and they were having an away day thinking about their vision, and they invited me to come over and share in it with them and to help facilitate a little bit. And they were asking some very similar questions. What's God asking of us? And Nick Williams, the vicar, uh, over coffee, you know, he, he went to the loo, came back, and at the beginning of the next session he said, well, God speaks in amazing ways, doesn't he? And if you've been to the loo here, you um, wash your hands, and then you read a sign on the dryer that says, place hands under here and be patient. And he said, I think this is a word from the Lord for Christchurch Waterdown Road. But it doesn't all happen instantly. Now, what I said to him, I said, actually, it's probably time we changed our hand dryers. But it was really key for them yesterday that they were a bit slow and that they had to be patient. And he said to his PCC, I think what God might be saying to us is that actually we do have to do some things. 
But we also have to be patient. We do the work and we're patient. And we don't have those instant responses as we might read in the book of Acts and think that is the lesson for us all. So what would it look like for us all to be involved in our community? What would it look like for us to be involved in Wanish? How involved am I in village life, apart from my walks through the village? I read the notice board outside the shop, all the activities going on, and I think I'd love to go to those things. Gardening Society, History Society, WI. And I look in my diary and I think I've got church activities on those days and I can't go. And I question, is that right? I'm not going to answer that, but I need to ask that question. Where should I be during my week? And where should I be involved? And is church sucking me into all the life of busyness of church that actually where I need to be becomes less possible? I just ask that question. I have never been to any of the productions that the Wanish players have put on. And I'm ashamed about that. Often they've been in half term. When our boys were at home, we were away for half term. But last time it wasn't. And I could have gone. But I was so busy, I didn't get around to booking a ticket. I forgot. Every time I saw the board, I'd think, oh yes, I'll go and book a ticket. By the time I got home, I'd forgotten. I never got round to booking a ticket. Am I interested in the parish council and all that goes on there? Would I even be willing to stand there looking for a new councillor? Is that a place where we could belong? And here's the word challenge. Do we get involved in the twice-a-year litter pick-up in Wanish? Maybe if we're saying that we're interested in sustainability and getting involved in the environment, that's a really obvious way that we could be involved. Or am I too busy doing church to actually go and do these things? I'm just going to put that out there. There are no answers to this. There are no right answers. Each one of us has to work through this for ourselves. And I'd like to suggest that this is something you might like to follow up in home groups. Because there might be things as a home group that you could do to be more involved in a local community, wherever that is. But what would it look like for us to be truly involved in our communities and making the most of the opportunities that are God-given and are there? We don't have to create the opportunities. God has done that. And then as we choose to be involved, the challenge is what does it look like to be wholly involved, completely involved, rather than my duty. Well, I feel it's important to go to the WI, so I'll go once or twice, but I'll just do it out of a sense of duty. I'm not really going to get involved. This is where the challenge of hospitality comes. And what is hospitality? And again, this last week, I was sent something on an email, and it was um, a quote from Pete Gregg. Pete Gregg heads up something called 24-7 Prayer, He's involved in a church in Guildford. He works part-time for Holy Trinity Brompton. And he blogs and writes a lot. And I read his stuff because he's really interesting and I really sense that God speaks through him. And this is what he was saying. And it was just five days ago that I got this. People tell me they have the gift of hospitality, by which they mean that they like dinner parties. They mean that they have, or aspire to have, a beautiful home with beautiful decor, and an embarrassingly underused spare room, in which they enjoy entertaining exotic, interesting, appreciative guests who confirm just how lovely their home and their decor is. This is not the gift of hospitality. This is the gift of a box of chocolates. Biblical hospitality starts in the heart and not the IKEA catalogue. It is sacrificial and thoughtful, familial and flexible, 
patient and consistent, humble and imaginative. It allows for interruption, goes the second mile and gives space. Above all else, hospitality means listening. Henri Nguyen said this, listening is the highest form of hospitality. Not to change people, but offering them space where change can take place. Hospitality like this rarely comes with a box of chocolates. It can often hurt our schedules, our emotions, our bank accounts, and yes, even our precious homes. That's a huge challenge. Am I hospitable? I love to cook a meal and have people round to the house. But am I willing to truly give sacrificially my time, my resources, to reveal who I truly am rather than the image that I wish to portray? If we want to make the most of these opportunities, we've got to start putting down the masks that we wear. If we want to be Christ wherever we are, we can only do that truly as we are. Being honest, being vulnerable. And that's really scary. It's really scary in this society where success is everything and where your image is hugely important. And it's a struggle. I struggle with it. I really struggle. Because I want to be in control of how people see me. I want to be in control of my time. Of when I choose to open my doors and say, come, because I've been able to hoover and I've been able to get everything looking just nice. But if you were to catch me at my lowest point, would I really want you to see how I live my life? Possibly not. Would I want you to come and it might make a mess? It might be uncomfortable. That is what hospitality is truly. And it will be messy. It will be inconvenient. It will be sacrificial. But it also offers an exciting, powerful challenge. We create holy space where others can meet Jesus. That quote from Henri Nguyen within this one. Listening is the highest form of hospitality. Not to change people, but offering them space where change can take place. In my mind, I would have a schedule. I'll get to know this person, then I'll ask them this, then I suggest that they do that. I might have to spend hours and hours and hours of creating space with any particular person. And my agenda mustn't be that I change them. My agenda needs to be, I will give of myself and my time, and there will be a holy space here. And I believe in holy spaces. I've sat with people where it's been an unexpected encounter and dialogue and I've had goosebumps down my back because I know God is in this conversation. Sometimes I've never seen that person again and that's okay because in that moment I've wanted to take my shoes off because I've known that where I am is in God's presence. Not of my doing, of God's doing. My part is creating the space. That's another one to follow up in home groups. That could take you all night, couldn't it? But how do we offer true hospitality? What does that look like? 
And how are we countercultural in Wanish? Can I knock on somebody's door when I'm not expected? Do I feel comfortable doing that? We might all say, I'm really happy for you to do that. And I think we would all say that. I really don't mind when anyone knocks on my door. The challenge is, do I feel comfortable going and doing it? How long does it take to book up a dinner engagement with friends? I have to plan six or eight weeks to catch friends. Really few people I want to spend time with. You have to book up so far in your diary. What is true hospitality in Wanish? And what do we need to do to create that holy space where we are available to those we love and those we love spending time with, but also those who are perhaps on the fringes of our social circles and where those opportunities might be ripe. Paul was strategic. He had a journey. He was a missionary and he knew what his goal was. But he did it strategically. He went to where people were. He recognized open hearts. And people responded. Lydia went on. She was the first convert in Europe. And through that conversion, the church in Europe could begin. And I would imagine a lot of that was through her hospitality, because that's what we read of, and that's what she's known as in the Bible. Opening up her home, welcoming people in, having conversations, so that the church could grow. Transforming church, transforming lives. As we come under the diocesan vision, what do we need to do? And how might we follow that example and offer holy space where change might take place. Amen.